Good morning, CBC. It's good to be with you all. My name is Joseph Williams. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Central Baptist Church. And just about a month ago, we started this journey into the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. And we've been asking the question that the original audience was asking when reading this book. This was written during the time of the exile, whenever the, the people of Israel were scattered among the nations. Many of them were in Babylon and Assyria. And they were asking the question, how did we get here? And do we have any hope of rest again? Those are the questions that they're asking today. We're going chapters 6 through 8 today, which is well over 100 verses. And I feel um, like we have a lot to cover. Amen. That's a lot of verses, right? Uh, I feel inadequate for the task of presenting this word this morning. And so let's pray together. Father, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you. And all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God and the people of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Father, we need your help today as we look at this word in 1 Kings 6 through 8. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be inclined to you. Lord, by your spirit, that you would cause us to walk in your ways and your statutes and that we would look to Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that all of our hope would be in him. Father, we pray that we would be able to see through the, the details of the temple and its leader in this plea that we have no hope but Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we thank you that you have provided rest for us. We pray that you would help us. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So it seems that right now at CBC, everybody is looking for a house, a dwelling place. Raise your hand if you're currently or have been currently seeking a house to live in. Okay, keep your hands up so everybody can look around. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that's a lot of people looking for a a place to settle down, to live. And it looks like that even the people who aren't looking for places to live are looking at houses around the Northeast. Everyone just has the fever to get on Zillow or Realtor.com and just look and look and look. We could all list the houses for sale in the Northeast, right? Everybody knows where they are. Everybody's talked about them. Most people have been through every for sale house in the Northeast. We all know about them. The foundations are bad in all of them, right? (laughs) Everyone is trying to find a suitable dwelling place. And there are definitely specific stipulations that come with finding the right house, right? You got to maintain the house. You got to pay mortgage. You have inspections, insurance. We have raised property taxes in the Northeast. Anybody see those? Okay, well, if you haven't opened your mail yet, you will. There's a lot that goes into building a house into a dwelling place. And what's the point of a house? To rest, right? To have a place that you can rest, to lay your head down and to invite people into a place of refuge and security. And our question for today is, what does it take for God to live with or dwell with man? What does it take for God to dwell with man? I think that's what the... The, the author is seeking to answer for those people in exile. Hundreds of years after the temple was built, these people have gone into exile. And if you want to know why they got there, 
you need to go back and read Deuteronomy 28 through 30. That's where Moses and the people of Israel received the covenant of blessing and curse. If you obey me, things will go well. If you disobey me, you will be sent into exile and things will be horrible and you will have no rest. So that's a big question, isn't it? What does it take for God to dwell with people? How can we have true rest? Could you ever do enough to get God to be your neighbor, to like get the house right next to you? Could you ever do enough to maybe just even go visit him every once in a while at his house? What would it take? This series of chapters is answering that question. Like I said, this book is also answering the question, is there still hope for rest? You heard that at the end. Look there again in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56. It says, blessed be the Lord who has given rest. Everybody see that in verse 56? Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, God started this promise a long time ago that he gives rest to his people when they walk in his ways where he dwells with them. There will be true rest. And now these people in the exile are completely without rest and they're wondering, is there ever going to be hope of rest again? Look over in First uh, Kings chapter five. Chapter 5, verse 4. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. God is keeping his promise to Israel and to Solomon. We're going to see later that in 1 Chronicles that Solomon was prophesied to be called the man of rest. Solomon means what? Peace. Solomon means peace. He's the man of peace, the man of rest that comes in and brings stability for these people. And so these people are now in the exile wondering, is there hope of rest? Is there hope of peace? And today in this passage, we're going to see three requirements for God to dwell with his people. Three requirements for God to dwell with his people. And we will see that there is still hope for true rest for God's people, if, if these three requirements are met. The first requirement is a holy place. The first requirement for God to dwell with his people is a holy place. The second requirement for God to dwell with his people is a wholehearted leader. leader. A holy place, a wholehearted leader. And number three, a humble plea. Three requirements for God to dwell with his people. Let's look at the first one. The first requirement. A holy place. In 1 Kings 6 through 7 and into chapter 8, we see Solomon building this holy place, this temple for God to dwell with his people. And we learn a lot of details in these chapters. Like a lot of details are put into this. We learn the specifications, each cubit measured out in every direction. 
what was carved into the wood and the wood overlaid with gold and the stone and where it was cut and how many people it took to get the stone there and the boats that it took to bring this, the, the wood all the way from Lebanon all the way down. A huge project of creating a place on earth for God to dwell with man. The first requirement is this holy place. But as we get started, we need to look back at chapter 5 where Aaron left off. And we need to, to, to see why was Solomon building a house? Look here in 1 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servant to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent to Hiram and said, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. As the Lord said to my to David, my father, your son, whom I set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and my servant will join your servants and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So where we left off last week, we come into this new episode, the building of the temple. Solomon, the man of wisdom, right? Such great wisdom given to him, promised to him by God. And now he's living it out and he's using this wisdom to build the house of the Lord. So why was Solomon building a house? Let's flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a really key point in the uh, whole book of Kings for us to be able to see who will be the true son of David that fulfills the promise. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the true son of David whose kingdom will be established forever. And the king will sit on the throne forever. We're waiting for that king. And so we'll look back to this often. If you'll read with me, uh, the first nine verses, David tells Nathan, hey, I want to build a house for for God. And Nathan's like, that's great. And then God appears to Nathan in the dream and says, no, that's not great. His son will build a house. And then we hear now Nathan's words in uh, chapter 7, 10 through 16. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Hear that rest there? And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest. Isn't that cool? From all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come down, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So why was Solomon building a house? 
Because God said that a son of David would come and build a house for him. So David is handing down this prophecy, this promise to his son Samuel. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 22. 1 Chronicles chapter 22. First Chronicles chapter 22, starting in verse 6. Right now we're answering the question, why was Solomon building a temple or a house for God? First Chronicles 22, 6 through 10. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house To the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. You guys hear these themes coming up? God is going to establish a kingdom forever. God will be a father to this son. God will put his name in this place. This house will be there and this will be established Forever. It's always been God's desire to dwell with his people, right? All the way from the garden. God was in the garden with them and then they were expelled, kicked out of the garden after sin came into the into the world, separated from the presence of God. And yet God has been on this rescue and redemption mission to bring his presence back to people. We saw it at the tabernacle with Moses and the people of Israel, right? God dwelled with his people. So in these chapters here, in chapter six, seven and eight, we're going to just see what did it take to build this house? Look at chapter six, one through ten. We already read it, so I'm just going to tell you kind of what was in there. In chapter six, one through ten, we saw huge, costly stones that were hewn in a quarry and then carried up. If you look right at the end of chapter five, there are uh, a few hundred thousand People working on this project. Is that mind blowing? A few hundred thousand people that are putting man hours into this temple project. That's a crazy amount of people moving stones and they're bringing trees from other countries. It says there were 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters, 30,000 men drafted to work in Lebanon. Just an amazing amount of work put into this. So they had in the first six, one through 10, huge costly stones. We get all the measurements for the house, all the cubits. We get to understand how wide and long and tall it was. We see the whole thing laid out. And if you go on Google, you can find about 400 different pictures of people putting the temple back together. It's really cool. I've been looking at a lot of pictures of the temple the last couple of weeks. It's amazing. Architecture and structure building. The way that they built the outside um, storage closets 
built up against the house, but not into the house. They built what the, uh, the, in verse 4 and 5, it says, He built a structure against the wall of the house, and he made the side chambers all around, and they stacked them up so they'd have places to put all of the collection of the temple. All this shows the amazing wisdom God had given and great skill to begin to build this immaculate house for God. So we have the overview in one through 10. That's the outside of the house. The next we see is the inside, the details. Chapter 6, 15 through 38. I'm going to try to highlight some of these as well. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 6. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Okay, we get the point there, right? He covered everything with wood. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built within as an inner sanctuary the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, a perfect square. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with Gold. A lot of gold going on, right? So we've got a big stone structure. The whole inside is carved wood. And then over the top of all the carved wood is gold. Completely perfect. Pure gold. He overlaid the house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged in the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In verse 23, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood. Each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measurement in the same form. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits and so was that of the other cherub. And guess what? He overlaid them with gold. We see that in verse 28. Verse 29, around all the walls of the house he carved and engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold. Verse 31, for the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with and spread on the cherubim and on the, on the palm trees. This place was amazing. In the details we see, everything was perfect. Because I think what's going on here is that we see that God has been now recreating this perfect place for him to dwell with his people. And what, what are all these Images supposed to remind us of palm trees, pomegranates, open flowers, the garden, right? 
God created the world and he put the sea together in one spot and he put the land together in another spot. And then he created a garden and in the center of the garden, he created this tree. What we see here is the reminder of where God originally dwelled with people in the garden. This garden paradise of Eden where God's presence was with man. Six days God worked and on the seventh, he rested. We're going to see throughout the rest of chapter six and seven, it's going to say, and it was work, it was finished. And then at the end of chapter six and seven, seven years in building it. And then they blessed their work. Just like God, right? After he finished all of his work, he rested on the seventh day and he blessed all of his creation. And then he began to dwell with his people. This place of rest in the garden, God is now creating through Solomon, this temple, this perfect place of rest for his his uh, dwelling in the cherubim. Remember when God put two cherubim to guard his presence outside, to guard the tree of life? Look at in verse 37, 38. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house, of, uh, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. It was finished. So now we have the outside of the house is done. The inside of the house is done. And now everything that goes into the house must be worked on. Look at chapter 7, 13 through the end. So in 15 through 22, we see Solomon builds two pillars. Huge pillars in front of the house. One at the end here, you'll see in verse 21 and 22, he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple he set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north side and calls its name Boaz. On the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the Lord of the pillars was finished. He's finishing the work and bringing it to the house. These pillars had great meaning for the temple. Um, one pillar meant the Lord has established and the other pillar meant in his strength. And so as you entered the temple, you would see the Lord has established his dwelling place in his strength and in his power. The redeeming God has restored and made a way for his presence to dwell again. They would have remembrance of that every time they drew near to the temple. The next thing that he made in 23 through 26 is the sea. So just like at the beginning of creation, um, the spirit of God hovered above the water and God took the chaos of the untamed sea, and then he gave it boundaries. And so what would you see as you enter the temple courtyard? This huge bowl of water contained. It was a big bowl of water. It, hold like, it held uh, 12,000 gallons or something like that. Huge craftsmanship right there, reminding them of God's power. It's like they were creating a small universe right in the temple complex. And right at the center of it, God was dwelling with his people. In 27 through 37, they make 10 stands. In 20, uh, 38 through 39, 10 basins of water that were on carts that they could roll around. And then in 40 through 51, all the items for the temp, uh, service of the temple was made. And it said that there was so much stuff made that they couldn't even weigh how much it all weighed. They couldn't, it was unweighable, the amount of stuff that there was. 
Look in verse 47. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there was so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of presents, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side, five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the cups, the snuffers, basins, dishes, incense, fire pans, pure gold, and the sockets of gold and doors in the innermost parts of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So what's the first requirement for God to dwell with his people is a holy place for him to dwell. We see the place being built. And what happens next in chapter 8, 1 through 11? Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people's Israel before Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of uh, Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and so many oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. It worked. Solomon built the house. He finished it. All the work had been done. They brought the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, into the house. And God's Spirit came and filled the house of the Lord so that the priests couldn't even stay in there. God was dwelling with His people. A place where people could come and be in contact with God. Right in Jerusalem. God had kept His promise that he would dwell with them. It was just like when Moses set up the tabernacle. Moses was there and the, the cloud came down and Moses was flushed out of the tent of meeting because God had taken up residence. So what's the point? For these exiles, reading back in and seeing this creation of the temple and God's spirit filling the temple. What's the point? Why are they to to go back and remember this? They're now in a place with no temple and no gold and no money and no stones and no couple hundred thousands of people to work for them and no Solomon and no king and no kingdom. Why are they to look back now and see this holy place? 
They're to be reminded that God has always been about recreating a space where his spirit will dwell with his people. Restoring the garden space, a recreation of the world where he lives with his people and provides true rest. Just as we read through this, you can imagine the work that went into the building this house. These people didn't have a temple. They didn't have a Solomon. But they did have a promise. They had a promise that God would dwell with them again. That there would be a son of David that would rebuild the temple. A son who would bring peace and rest. These people looked back to the promise. And then they looked forward to the anticipation of it being kept. They look back to the temple and they say, well, God, you kept your promise then. And so surely you'll keep your promise again. There's got to be someone from the line of David who will come. Flip forward to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, Jesus, what sign do you show for us doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you remember that Luke chapter 24 teaches us that all of the Torah, the law, and the prophets, and all the Psalms are all about who? They're all about Him. He said, you so slow of heart to understand that all Scripture points to me, that I am the fulfillment of all things. Look, for, look back at Matthew chapter 12. Look in verse three. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here and has come. I was reading a commentary yesterday on these verses and the Greek word used there is uh, used of like when you would um, point at something. And so they're assuming that Jesus is saying something greater than the temple is here as though he's pointing at himself as he's telling them that. Something greater than the temple. I'm here with you. Jesus perfectly met the requirements of a holy place. 
where God would dwell with people. John chapter 1, verse 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. He was holy, just like His Father. He never sinned. Even when He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for those 40 days, He resisted temptation. And Jesus completely and perfectly lived before His Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the true and better temple where God dwells. Paul said of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus was the temple. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise when Jesus or God told David, I will build you a house and you will build me a house. Jesus is now the fulfillment of both of those promises. Jesus is both the house and the house builder. Jesus comes as the the fulfilled promise. And those people in the exile that were wondering, God, will you ever keep your promise? He did. In sending his own son, Jesus, to be a temple for us. The place that we would come and have communion with God and atonement for our sin. When they brought the ark in, at the top of the ark was the mercy seat. Where the blood would be sprinkled once a year to atone, to pay for the sin of the people. Jesus came to be that propitiation for our sin. So Jesus is the temple, but did you also know that the New Testament says that you are the temple? If you are in Christ, you are the temple of the living God. Not only did God dwell in Jesus, but now God dwells in you by his spirit. First Corinthians 16, 19 says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God has taken up residence in you. Solomon's temple, this grand building that took seven years to build. And God's presence came and dwelt there. A holy place. And now Jesus has made you holy by his blood. First Peter chapter one. He sanctified us, sprinkling us with his blood. More precious than what? Gold. Where did we hear about gold today? The whole inside of the temple, right? Overlaid with gold to sanctify this place to be pure. And now something even more pure has sanctified us. The precious blood of Jesus. Romans 8, 9 through 17 speaks multiple times that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Ephesians chapter 3. 14 through 21. Listen to this. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is dwelling in you and God is also building his temple 
bigger and further and more amazing than we can even think or imagine. That's what Paul says in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. He's able to do far more abundantly than we could even think or imagine. Like, God went from Solomon's temple to Jesus. Who would have thought that? Not me, right? The people in exile were like, there's got to be another like stone building with gold all over it. And then a, a, a man shows up that says, I have the fullness of God's deity dwelling in me. I am the temple. And everyone's like, no, that, that, that's not right. And Jesus said, no, I am the father of one. I came to seek and save the lost. What else did Jesus say? Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. In Acts chapter 2, we see that God came to dwell in his people. His spirit descended on his people in the upper room and filled them. And they began to prophesy and speak about the gospel. That God was who he was and Jesus had came to redeem. So the question for us and for you is, are you living as though the spirit of God dwells in you? Do you actually like think about that on a daily basis? When we get to see something as, as, as amazing as the construction of the temple in Jerusalem from Solomon. And then God's dwelling in you. Do you see what God has done to sanctify you and make a sacred space on earth for him to dwell in you? Like the, like the people in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the, of the Lord, of his spirit? Glorify God in your body. Why? Because you were bought with a price. There was a price tag on your being bought and sanctified and God's spirit dwelling in you. The price to construct the temple, people estimate, was $1.6 billion. Those seven years of building, I looked up this morning, the most expensive house to sell in the United States of America this year or last year in 2022 $126 million was the most expensive house to sell in California. 120,000 square feet of space or something like that for a house. $126 million. That's that's like a doghouse, right? Compared to the temple of the Lord. And it says that you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. So how are you honoring God with your body? In Hebrews, it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is both individually for each of us that make up the church and for our church collectively. We seek to live as a holy temple set apart for the Lord and for his purpose. So brothers and sisters, how can God dwell with his people in a holy place? A holy place made holy by the precious blood of Jesus. I know that there's so much else that could be said here of this first part, the the temple. We just like skimmed over 80 some verses here. And there could probably be 15 more sermons on seeing the details. 
But it's amazing for us to now see that we no longer go somewhere to worship God. We don't have to take a, a, a pilgrimage to the temple every year to bring a sacrifice. Instead, the Spirit of God dwells in us. And when we leave this building today, the presence of God does not dwell anywhere in this building. The Spirit of God and the presence of God dwells in the people of God when they come together. The people of God dwelling as His body. God must have a holy place to dwell with His people and in His people. And not just a holy place, but a wholehearted leader. Number two. Number two, look back at 1 Kings chapter 6. We need a wholehearted leader. Even the temple couldn't stand on its own. It was great. They had finished it. The Spirit of God was there. But the, the people of God needed someone to lead them who was fully devoted, fully committed to lead the people toward loving God with all of their heart. And we need a wholehearted leader for God to remain with us as well. Right in the middle of God or of Solomon building the temple, God appears or his word, the, the word of the Lord appears to Solomon. Look at chapter 6, 11 through 13. First Kings chapter 6, 11 through 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among you. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. Brothers and sisters, the temple of God needed a wholehearted leader to, to go before and to keep leading the people. And God tells Solomon here, if you walk in my statutes, if you obey my rules, if you keep my commandments, if you walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. I will dwell among you and I will never leave you. It's a lot of weight, isn't it? It's a lot of weight on Solomon. We begin to see in Solomon kind of this like, I don't know, I, I think we can feel it in the text. He's, he's kind of like, I've got this. I'm the promised one. Like, I, I've got this. I can do it. Solomon even knows. Look at chapter 8, verse 23. Solomon's praying before all the people and he knows the requirements that are on him. Solomon said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand and fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, O God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Solomon knew the requirements that he must be a wholehearted person. And yet we've already seen in the story leading up. What's the first thing that Solomon did? We learn about Solomon and the first thing he did is he goes to Egypt and finds a wife. He wasn't supposed to do that. 
Second thing, he gets a ton of horses and chariots stored up. He wasn't supposed to. He was told, do not do that. And then in, in this, we're not totally sure what it means, but look at chapter 7, 1 Kings 7, 1 through 12. We won't read the whole thing, but just a, a few verses here. Solomon was building his own house 13 years and finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. So uh, look at verse 9. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits and above were costly stones. So here we have Solomon. He just finished the temple seven years, put in a ton of work. And then the very next thing it says in Solomon was 13 years in building his own house. And it says that Solomon made his house almost twice the size as God's house. Now, we don't know fully what's going on here, right? But we know Solomon's not the man. The guy's in exile. They know Solomon's not the man because they're in exile. And Solomon did not keep following the Lord. And Solomon built this huge house. And yet the man who was to lead Israel in following after God was to be wholehearted, to obey in all things, to not even have a a smidgen of moving from the left or the right. They were to be a wholehearted person, to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if the leader were to do this, then God would continue keeping his promise to that leader. But if they were to run the other way, then God's blessing would be pulled back. We saw that Solomon is already claiming these promises. Lord has fulfilled his promise in eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 20. The Lord's fulfilled his promise today to me. He will establish my throne forever. The original, the original readers definitely knew that Solomon was not the forever king. God did give Solomon 40 years of peace. 40 years of rest. But then just a few chapters later, Solomon says, it says his heart turned away from the living God to all the gods of the nations. Solomon had it all going for him. He had his daddy's money. Probably had his dad's good looks. He had promise after promise. He was given peace and rest. And he wasn't the guy. Listen again to 1 Chronicles 22. Just listen. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So what are the people in exile asking? Is there hope? Do we have hope of ever entering into rest? Do you ever feel that question for yourself? Like just a day-to-day basis? Maybe you have kids and you're like, will there ever be a day of rest? 
Maybe you have a job. Will I ever have rest? These people were asking a very similar question. What hope do we have? What does it take for God to dwell with his people? A perfect leader? Where are we going to find one of those? We had David. He couldn't even build a house for God. He had too much blood on his hands. Solomon, he had it all going for him. And he threw it out the window. And then every king was increasingly worse as we get toward the exile. And here they are sitting there. What hope do we have? So again, they look back to the promise of God and they look forward to the fulfillment. And now what do we do? We look back to the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus. Jesus appears on the scene. Go back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Solomon was great, wasn't he? Actually, I don't know. Jesus said that Solomon had a lot of splendor. Solomon was really wise. But listen to what he says about Solomon. Jesus says about Solomon in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Starting in verse 21. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something or someone greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, I'm here and something greater than Solomon is here. You better listen up and pay attention. Jesus is the wholehearted leader that they have been waiting for and longing for and crying out for. And so for us. We see that a requirement to dwell with God is to have a wholehearted leader. And we know if Solomon can't attain to that, then we have no hope. Solomon was the like Solomon was the most wise person to ever live. And yet he didn't have hope that he could uh, complete and fulfill the the requirements of being a wholehearted person before God. So what do you think? What What hope do you have to fulfill God's requirements? I'm not as smart as Solomon. Not even a little bit. Jesus is the true and better Solomon, his wisdom. Solomon gave the people of Israel rest for about 40 years, but Jesus is the man of rest who gives eternal rest. Like we just said, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you think that was intentional? Like when Jesus said that, do you think it was intentional that the people of Israel would hear in the first century that Jesus was the man of rest? Yes or no? So intentional. How many times did we read? God said, I will establish my promise with you and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. God gave them rest. And then Jesus shows up and he says, hey, everybody, come to me and I will give you rest. The man of rest, the better Solomon. The better peacemaker. Ephesians chapter 2. Just listen to this. It says that Jesus has now become our peace. Jesus is our peace. Pulling down the wall of hostility and causing us to be able to draw near to God by his own precious blood. Jesus, the man of peace, the man of rest, the man of wisdom. Jesus fully carried out the work that God gave him to do. 
Jesus completely fulfilled the requirements of being a wholehearted person. He completely fulfilled the, the if-then statements of 2 Samuel 7 of 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. And Jesus is the true wholehearted leader that we need for God to dwell with us. You remember, that's the question we're asking. What does it take for God to dwell with us? We need a holy place. We need a wholehearted person. God has established Jesus' reign forever. Our, our, our kingdom is secure, brothers and sisters. Because we have a wholehearted leader, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. At the end of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, but we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. These people thought they had it made with Solomon, right? We've got it. We're here. And yet when the kingdom was shook, it all fell apart. But we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken because our kingdom is built on on Christ. The perfect fulfillment of the promises of, of, of God. So the question is, is Jesus your king? Do you have a wholehearted leader? Do you, do you have someone leading you to the presence of God? Or are you kind of going on your own? I can do it. No problem. Like he just says you got to do a few things. Like don't turn your heart from the left or the right. Just stay wholehearted. Submit to him in all things. Do you think you could really get to heaven on your own without Jesus being your wholehearted king, your wholehearted leader? If Jesus is not your king and you desire this all sufficient, all satisfying king, then listen to point three. It shows us the way to be in consistent, right relationship with our God. So number three, a humble plea. We're looking at the three requirements for God to dwell with his people. The first was a holy place. Second, a wholehearted person. And the third, a humble plea. First Kings chapter 8, 27 through 61. Again, brothers and sisters, there's a lot, a lot of verses here. And we could preach so many sermons over these verses. And so again, I'm going to try to give you as much as I can. And I'm sure you're going to see things that I'm not pointing out. And that's great. Go back this week and restudy these chapters. I've been spending weeks trying to understand what does this mean for the people of God. And so I encourage you, go back, keep studying. As you see all these things popping up, go back and study. Look in verse 27. We need a humble plea. So really in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, 12 all the way through the end of 61, Solomon was leading people in a right prayer, even in the right posture. It says that Solomon was down on his knees with his hands toward heaven and he's crying out to God. He's blessing the temple and he's pleading, pleading before God for help. But he never followed through on the heart of his prayer. Neither did the people. They didn't repent. They didn't turn. They didn't call out to God consistently and ask for help. And they didn't uphold God's cause that all the peoples of the earth might know that he is the Lord and there's no one like him. Read with me 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? What a great question, Solomon. What a great question. Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you, O God. How much less this house that I have built. Yet... Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his 
plea. That's what we're looking at, right? A humble plea. Listen, have regard for his prayer and his plea. O Lord, my God, listen, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes might be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel. When they pray toward this place, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. Brothers and sisters, the third requirement of God's dwelling is a a humble plea from his people. A humble plea to keep moving forward. There's a seven part prayer dedicating the temple here. These prayers of uh, repentance and forgiveness. And, And another imagery that's helping us to think about God's presence coming back to earth in sevens, there's a lot of sevens right here. Seven, seven days of creation uh, with God resting um, in the tabernacle being built. There's sevens all over there. And now we see it again happening with the dedication of the temple. And here we see these seven prayers. And I'm just going to give you an overview. We're not going to go into these, but we want to look at the heart of them. Verse 31 and 32 is a prayer for justice, that God would uphold justice. So he says, hear from heaven. Number two is a prayer for rescue, verse 33 and 34. Number three, a prayer for provision, verse 35 and 36. Verse four, a prayer for deliverance, verse 37 through 40. Number five, a prayer for outsiders, verse 41 through 43. Number six, a prayer for victory, 44 through 45. Number seven, a prayer for restoration, 46 through 53. Solomon led them in such a right way. The heart of this plea is amazing. For Solomon to say all these words and and desire to go this way, to lead the people in this way, so dependent. It it is a humble plea, even a a humble way that Solomon was presenting this plea. But now they're sitting in exile. So they're being reminded of Solomon's plea, but there's no temple to pray toward anymore, right? The temple was torn down and completely destroyed and all the gold carried away, the stones knocked down, all the things taken out of the temple, the ark hidden somewhere, never to be seen again. What hope do they have? If we pray toward this place... And you're in heaven. Would you hear in heaven and forgive, accept our our plea and our prayer? Daniel is one example um, that we learn about of praying toward Jerusalem. He's in the exile. He's praying toward Jerusalem. And that's what we see uh, a picture of what Solomon is praying about here. We'll come back to those, please, after a little bit. Look at chapter 8, 54 through 61. The end of Solomon's benediction. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest. To his people Israel, according to all that he promised. 
Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God will be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us or forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, with he, with, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And he may maintain the cause of his servants and, cause, and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be holy, true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. A humble plea. Just a a few things to look at. Solomon's reminding them God has never failed you one time. He's kept every bit of his promise. God is a promise keeper. And Aaron really focused in on that last week. Never doubt God in his promises. He will keep his promise. Verse 57, it says, the Lord will be with us. That was promised back in chapter six. If, if you walk in my ways, if you keep my commands, if you're a wholehearted leader, then I will dwell with you and I will never leave you. And what does Solomon say? He says, may God never leave us or forsake us. Let's depend on you, Solomon. It's up to you, buddy. You walk in his ways and God will stay with you forever. Then in verse 59, Solomon prays that the Lord would maintain the cause of his servant and of his people. As each day requires. Why? Look at verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth might know that you are the Lord. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like they had it all lined up. God, your presence is with us. I'm going to fulfill your promise. And we know, God, that your desire from the beginning has been your glory in all places among all people. And now we're going to see your glory be be all over the face of the earth because everyone will know that you are the Lord God. Lord, maintain our cause so that all the peoples of the earth might know. And then the last verse, let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God. So what the last thing Paul or Paul Solomon is urging to the people assembled together. A humble plea without humility doesn't take us anywhere though, does it? You can say all the right words, you can lay down on the ground. But words mean nothing. They don't come from a true heart of humility. Who does God want to dwell with? Isaiah 66 says that God dwells with the person who is humble and has a contrite heart. And brothers and sisters, that is not Solomon. And it's not any of us either. So what hope do we have? If God listens to a humble plea that comes from a true heart of humility, what hope do we have? I mean, Solomon, again, he had it all going for him, right? If if you could be set up for success, it was Solomon. 
And yet he couldn't bring God's people in. So what hope do we have if if we have a holy place, we have a wholehearted leader. but We can't even get to the point of humility on our own. Well, the prayer that Solomon's given us here. It teaches us of repentance. and Belief. When your people repent and turn, please forgive. So how do you enter God's kingdom? How do you how do you become a subject in the kingdom of Christ? Through repentance and belief. Through repentance and belief. This was at the beginning of Jesus ministry in Mark chapter one. He said the kingdom of God has come. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. This is what the first apostles, this is what the first apostles taught in Acts chapter 2. When the men said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? What did they say? Repent and believe. And then Paul came and he, he taught the same thing in Acts chapter 20. He said, I came preaching repentance and belief in the name of Jesus Christ. We are people who pray out of humility with full dependence on Jesus to do what we cannot. A humble plea without humility is nothing. So where does humility come from? It must come from the Spirit of God. Conviction that comes from God's preached word to us through the gospel. His Spirit convicts our hearts and shows us and tells us and reminds us and tells us that You have no hope on your own. You are utterly helpless without me. Who will God dwell with people that know that they have no hope on their own? That was not Solomon. But brothers and sisters, it, 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 it is you if Christ is in you. The hope of glory. What does the gospel do? It humbles us. We learn that God is holy, righteous, creator. We are accountable to him and man is sinful and completely separated and we have no hope on our own. So what do we do? We call out in humility and say, God, save me. Do you remember what Solomon said? If anyone prays toward this house. And then what did Jesus say? If anyone calls upon my name, you will be saved. The place where God's spirit dwells is in the person of Jesus. And we call on Jesus for salvation. Jesus comes and he saves his people from their sins. And Jesus is the true one that prayed a humble prayer. He lived his life in complete dependence on God. Again, back when Jesus was in the wilderness, what did he do? He depended on the Holy Spirit and he depended on the word of God. He didn't just kind of, oh, I've got this. I'm Jesus. I can do whatever I want. He said, no, man does not live on bread alone. He depends on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was the holy place. Jesus was the wholehearted leader. And Jesus was the only person to have prayed a true, humble plea to his God. And now we follow in Jesus' footsteps. Listen to Romans chapter 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God, friends, that we have a helper. The Spirit of God in us to keep pulling us back to a true, humble plea. And brothers and sisters, it is your responsibility as a follower of Christ to keep yourself in a humble plea. Submitted place under his word. The words here at the end of 1 Kings chapter 8. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Walking uh, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. That's for you. And that's for me. But the only way we can do that is by fully and completely depending on Christ. And when we don't live up, what do we do? We try hard, right? No, we repent and we believe. And then when you mess up again... You just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you try harder. No. What do you do? You repent and you believe. A true humble plea comes with recognizing that you can do nothing to save yourself, nothing to keep yourself. And you say, all I have is Christ. I am poor and needy. I have no hope on my own. I need Jesus. A great way to keep yourself in a habit of dependence is by uh, separating a time out every day to pray. And at Central, we often use the ACTS acronym for prayer. ACTS is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So first we're reminded, God, this is who you are, just like Solomon in this prayer. He says, God, behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. You are the God of Israel. You have created all things. You are above all things and all people. So we're reminded that's who God is. And what's next? Confession. We put ourselves where we know the scripture teaches us we should be. Low. Bring me low. My heart lowers still. That your grace, my pride, relieves So we confess our sins and we tell God who he is. And then we remind ourselves who we are. We confess. We turn away. And then we offer a prayer of thanksgiving. God, thank you that you would look toward me, that you have heard my prayer. Why me, God? Thank you. Thank you for not just saving me, but I'm still living. I'm breathing. I know people. I have food to eat today. Lord, thank you for everything you've given me. And lastly, supplication. God, I need you. I know I don't have a whole heart. I know I'm not humble on my own. I know I think I'm better than everybody else. I know that I need your help. Lord, help me today. Not only do you need prayer, you need the word saturating your heart and mind each day. You need friends. Why do we meet together as the church? To remind ourselves daily that we need Jesus. Why do we have prayer meetings? Why do we sing? Why do we take the Lord's Supper? To keep ourselves in a humble state before God. To remember our constant need of God's work in our lives. And to remember that there's only one person that has truly prayed a humble plea. As we end, I want to point us to these two things that Solomon prayed here in verse 41 through 43 says likewise when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake 
For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes, the foreigner, and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. At the end of the 50s and into 60 here, it says 59. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And that he may maintain the cause of your servant and the cause of your people as each day requires so that all the peoples of the earth may know that you are God. Brothers and sisters, a humble plea comes with this following of the cause of God to be glorified among all the nations. And so when we pray a humble plea, we put ourselves out and we say, God, whatever you want for my life. And God, the more I look at your word, the more I see that your desire is that all the nations know you. When Jesus came, he was the leader, right? And at the end of his ministry, he died, he rose again. And then what did he do with his authority? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go sleep on your couches and watch TV. No, he didn't. He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teach them to be wholehearted people. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's what we saw over and over and over in this text, right? Teach them to follow me, to be wholehearted people, to depend on me. And then what did Jesus say at the end? Surely. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you and never forsake you. Did you guys see that? Right here in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 57, Solomon prays, Lord, will you never leave us? Will you never forsake us? And what does Jesus promise you if you are in Christ? As you go about maintaining this cause of all the nations coming in, my glory among all people that all the nations might fear you, God, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Jesus, the holy place, the wholehearted leader and the one to pray the humble plea and lead us into this is also maintaining the cause of God perfectly and completely. And he will see it through to the end, because what did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here and the kingdom will be established. Brothers and sisters, make sure that your life aligns with this cause of God. Make sure that you're pleading with God to maintain his cause in you daily. So what does it take for God to dwell with man? Is there any hope? The answer should be what? A resounding yes. There is so much hope. Could you ever accomplish what it takes for God to dwell with man on your own? No. But today we saw in this text that God has given out the details for a holy place where God can dwell with man. And that's no longer in a temple because God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. But God dwells in his people. What else? God dwells with a wholehearted leader and we have one in Jesus. And now he's teaching us to be wholehearted people. Finally, a humble plea. And praise God that you can find this in Jesus. Praise God that he has given us rest 
True spiritual rest. You don't have to work another moment for your righteousness. Amen? And now we get to work alongside the King of Kings until the day that He comes back that all the nations might fear Him. Church, just a year ago, we started 1 Peter and we tried to familiarize ourselves with the idea of being exiles, elect exiles, scattered among all the nations. We often will and often do feel like we don't belong, like everything's crumbling around us. We're looking for a home, not one in the Northeast, right? We're desiring a true dwelling place where the plumbing doesn't break and the toilets don't fall apart and the door doesn't fall off its hinges and it doesn't cost a thousand dollars an hour to live somewhere and your power rates don't go up and we're desiring this. As the people of Israel were being pushed to look forward to the coming Messiah, let me point you to Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 4. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in dependence on your word today, even as we go from here. Lord, thank you for providing Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the holy one, the one that has fully and completely carried out the requirements for you to dwell with us. Lord, we thank you that we can look back at the temple and know that was just a shadow of Jesus who was to come in the church that you would build. That we can look back at Solomon and say, wow, how much greater is Jesus? How much more wise? How much more peace? How much more rest? And Lord, that we can know now today that we can pray in humility because you are with us and you've put your spirit in us to teach us and guide us into all things. Help us to be dependent on you, Lord. We need you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.